Today we're studying Mark chapter 7. Mark wrote this summary of Jesus' life, his crucifixion and resurrection, about 30 years after the events. Uh, He based his written summary here on the verbal testimony of his teammate Peter. At the time he wrote this, he was teaming alongside Peter, Jesus' lead disciple in Rome. The two of them were advancing the church there in the city of Rome, and Mark put in writing the way Peter would have answered the question, so who is Jesus and why should it matter for my life? Much of what we read today in Mark 7 centers around the dinner table. The first part of the discussion has to do with washing your hands before dinner, and the second part focuses at one critical point on crumbs that fall from the children who are seated around the table. And I have laughed several times as I have prepared this message because it has made me recall many funny memories. And I basically hinted to my kids that I might talk about some of those funny memories, and they agreed that I should not. (laughs) So I'm going to speak generally, and I'm going to speak most about myself. So the first dinner table issue is washing hands before you, before you get to dinner. I do not understand why children hate washing their hands before dinner. They could be playing in the mud, petting the cat, wiping their noses, and they can't see any point to washing their hands. We as parents actually have to make rules about how much soap to use. And we have to make rules. No, you have to scrub for 10 seconds, not one. Because they struggle with washing their hands before dinner. I remember lying to my parents about whether I washed my hands before dinner. What a stupid thing to lie about. My dad would have to say, come here, Joe, let me smell your hands to see if you use soap. (laughs) One comedian put it like this, why should any human being ever have to ask that kind of question of another human being? Can I smell your hands to see if you use soap? (laughs) What? Speaking of crumbs at the dinner table, okay, I have been a parent and a homeowner long enough to know that children are horribly messy eaters. Hannah and I keep dreaming about the day when our children are old enough and we can finally wisely replace the floor under our table. It has been abused by food, crumbs, spills, you name it. When our kids were babies, We literally kept towels permanently under their high chairs. We ended up having to get rid of the wooden chairs that their littler chairs were seated on top of, even though we constantly washed the wooden chairs. After years, they were caked with layers and layers of food residue. And even still today, my kids are much older, thankfully, than, than when we were dealing with all of the major, major spills and crumbs. But today, we still sweep our floor every night, and it is positively disgusting 
how much food accumulates on our dining room floor every single day, okay? Thank you for allowing me to vent. I feel, <laughs> I feel just a little better now. Get that off my chest. Suffice it to say, I've lived long enough to know that filthy hands and messy crumbs are a fairly normal part of eating dinner. Now we're ready to read Mark 7. Mark 7. Now the Pharisees, when they gathered to him, to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Notice that this next statement is in parentheses all the way down through the end of verse 4. 3 and 4 are parenthetical. Mark is explaining what's going on here. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, even dining couches. Notice the phrase there at the end of verse 3, holding to the tradition of the elders. In verse 4, it's simply called, again, traditions. In other words, what's going on here, what's being referred to, is not God's commands in the Old Testament law, but it's to traditions that had developed over centuries and been passed down by word of mouth from one generation to the next. So you'll never find a command in the Old Testament that instructed every person to wash their hands before dinner. Some of you kids are like, yes! <laughs> You're going to go back home today and say like, Mom, show me in the Bible where it says I need to wash my hands. No, this is not legitimizing your filth, okay? Please just obey. <laughs> wash your hands! <laughs> Use soap, okay? Okay, okay, you got it. These were non-biblical oral traditions, okay? They were studied and taught, actually, by the Jewish legal scholars, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they were eventually, over a century after Jesus lived, they were written down in what's known as the Jewish Mishnah. That is the oral tradition that was eventually codified and written down. At this point, it was still shared verbally. Verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but instead eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, and here he quotes Isaiah 29.6, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. They teach as doctrines the commandments of men. And then Jesus said, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And then he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. 
There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said, then are you also without understanding? Don't you see that whatever goes into a person from the outside can't defile him? Since it doesn't enter his heart, but his stomach, and then it's expelled. Mark puts in parentheses, this is massive. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. Mark is noting what's happening here is a major shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Old Covenant way of life to the New Covenant way of life. In this moment, Jesus is declaring that all the Old Testament regulations about not eating certain foods had served their purpose and were no longer necessary. Wow. Verse 20, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person. And from there he arose and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know yet he couldn't be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Okay, you need to know, Mark is butting these two stories up against each other. He's dealing with uncleanness. And then he goes and he meets a woman who's unclean. As one teacher put it, she fulfills every definition of impure that would have been live at the time. She's a foreign woman with a demonized daughter. This woman's unclean. And verse 27, Jesus says to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the pets to the dogs, to the household dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, I know. Yet even the pets under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre, and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, into the region of the Decapolis. Now, this is Roman territory. This is a region of ten towns. That's why it's called Decapolis. It's ten towns that the Roman government was settling. And if you lived in Israel, you considered Decapolis foreign territory. And verse 32, they brought to him a man who was deaf, who had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into the man's ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed. Note that word. He sighed. He's probably grieved by how different the world was from the way he had designed it to be. He sighed, and he said to the man, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And the man's ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. 
And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, Everything he does is wonderful. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 35. He can unstop deaf ears and he can make the tongue of the mute sing for joy. As the passage goes on, and I am certain that Mark and Peter said this was the reaction of the people with Isaiah 35 in mind because Isaiah 35 goes on to say Jesus is going to rid the world of uncleanness and he's going to fill the world with everlasting joy and he's going to make all, this is really interesting, all sorrow and sighing flee away. Jesus just sighed. Same exact word as in the Greek Old Testament. Jesus sighed. The one who sighed is going to make all sighing flee away. Now, the passage that we study this morning, Mark 7, is offensive to many, many people. I've read several people who consider it repulsive. I'll give you one example. A year ago, September 2021, the minister at the Memorial Church at Harvard, his name's Matthew Potts, He spoke on these passages in Mark 7 in back-to-back weeks. The first week, he spoke on the passage on inner filth. And the second week, the next week, he spoke on the passage with the Syrophoenician woman. He began both messages by saying that he'd rather not have preached on these passages. He said, I would prefer to look past these passages. But he said, I'm focusing on them because they're part of our lectionary schedule that's used by many Christians throughout the world. Why didn't he want to preach on the passages? He said, well, the passage about inner filth can fuel shame-based constructions of sexuality. And the passage about the Syrophoenician woman can fuel patriarchy and misogyny. According to Potts, Jesus, who had just in the passage on filth named slander as one of those things that comes out of the hearts of those who are unclean, he himself then commits slander. He's guilty of slandering this woman. Potts says it bluntly in his message. Jesus insults her. There's no defense of how he refers to her as a dog. But according to Potts, the woman corrects Jesus And because Jesus listens to her, he ends up changing. And Jesus, from this point on in his ministry, ends up caring more about Gentiles and more about the children for the rest of his ministry. This is what the minister says. The word from this woman utterly alters the direction of Jesus' ministry. He listens to this woman and his ministry is changed. The weak that Potts preached this message was the week, last year, a year ago, that the Supreme Court chose to allow the Texas six-week abortion ban to take effect. So Potts concluded his message by grieving the Supreme Court's decision. He grieved the way in which men with power refused to listen to vulnerable women. 
The way in which men with power, like Jesus, refuse to listen to vulnerable women like the Syrophoenician. Here's how he concluded his message. If we listen to a gospel story like this, we shouldn't be surprised when those with power refuse to trust women with the most difficult, consequential, and sometimes anguished decisions of their lives. But if we listen to the woman in this gospel story, we should be indignant and resolute. Let me put it in plain English. Pot says, Jesus was wrong. That's what we learned from the story. But he grew through listening to the woman. And like Jesus, the Supreme Court was wrong for banning abortion. And we should be angry and we should oppose such abuse of power. Now, I want to ask, does Potts understand Mark 7 rightly? Is he a good interpreter of Mark? Is Jesus repressive? Is Jesus restraining people's sexual freedom and joy in a way that will be oppressive to them? Is Jesus a patriarchal misogynist, a person who despises women? And has to grow through this. Is Jesus guilty of insulting this woman? Did he need to be corrected by her? As you might guess, I think that Potts grossly misinterprets Mark. And I think he blasphemously misrepresents Jesus. How should we rightly understand it? The main point of Mark 7, I'd put like this. No matter if we're religious or irreligious, we need Jesus to cleanse our hearts. In the first half of the chapter, Jesus confronted the Jewish scholars' erroneous understanding of defilement, of what makes someone filthy. He shows they completely misunderstood the point of the Old Testament regulations of uncleanness. And in the second half of the chapter, Jesus shows that he has the power to heal Gentiles, those whom the Jews considered to be unclean. Uncleanness is the issue of this chapter. What makes you unclean? And who can be cleansed? The Jews should have considered the Gentiles to be their mission field. Instead, they consider them to be the dogs, the scavengers. So I'd state the main point like this. It doesn't matter if you're religious, like the Pharisees and scribes, or if you're irreligious, like the people living in Syrophoenicia or in the Decapolis, those wicked Romans, those foreigners. doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious. We need Jesus to cleanse our hearts. This is the issue. Now, I'm going to explain, but you just need to know that I'm going to spend about twice as much time in my explanation on the first half of the chapter as I do on the second half, all right? The message of Mark 7 broken down looks like this. In the first half of the chapter, Jesus is focused on cleansing the filth of our hearts, not of our hands. He deals with some of the most religious people of his day, the Jewish legal scholars. They notice that his disciples aren't following the traditions, and so they say, why don't you make them follow the tradition and wash their hands? Again, Their concern is not contamination with germs. 
Their concern is with ritual cleanliness. The cleanliness that was required to meet with God in the temple. All right? Now, according to the Old Testament, there were many things that could make you unclean. Technically, washing or not washing your hands was not one of them, but they had added this rule to it. They added their own rules. They developed the rules in the Old Testament and said, these are now what we need to follow in order to obey God, and they valued their list of rules. Jesus responded to their question, why don't you wash your hands following the tradition? by saying that they had missed the whole point of the law. If you look down at verses 6 and 7, he says, you all are fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that you would be very, very religious, but disobedient to God. Wow. They'd be concerned about religious-looking rules, but they'd actually be living contrary to the way God designed. You can be very religious and far away from God. In verses 8 to 13, he goes farther and points out that they had a lot of laws in their day, a lot of rules in their day, that actually helped people disobey God. And he gives the one example. He says, adults could dedicate a portion of their estate to God, and by doing so, they could avoid the necessity of caring financially for their aging parents. Their traditions were overruling God's commands. You could follow this tradition and get out of your need to obey God's command. Now, I think it's really critical right now, especially because I know several of you in the congregation and I know what you're dealing with. It's crucial to just point out that God expects children to care for their aging parents. Children the, the immediate children in the household are the first responders to caring for aging parents. It's what's involved in the command that God gave, children, obey your parents, honor your father and mother. What does it mean to obey your parents and honor your father and mother? It means at least three things. While you're under their roof, you obey their rules. Number two, you respect them always. And number three, you care for them physically and financially in their older years. This is God's command. Children who honor their parents by caring for them in their elderly years are, I'm quoting Paul in 1 Timothy 5.4, very pleasing to God. It is exhausting work. It is costly work. It is life-altering work. But it is work that's very pleasing to God. I thank God for so many of you in our congregation who have cared for aging parents, who are caring for them, who are ready to care for them when that day comes. I want to urge you, keep obeying God in this way. It's very pleasing to him. But now getting back to Jesus' bigger point. His bigger point is that religious traditions can actually replace God's commands. I could give a couple examples, like a professing Christian who goes to church for an hour a week and say, I've fulfilled my responsibility to God. I'm keeping God in his place in my life. He gets one hour of my week. You completely misunderstand what it is to live for God. Or a professing Christian who posts signs 
in their front yard saying kindness for everyone, human rights matter, while supporting abortion. It's like professing Christians who care more about what version your Bible is than if they understand the gospel and actually share it. Religious traditions can actually replace God's commands. This is Jesus' concern. And religious traditions are alive and well in our day in every stream of Christianity. It is critical to recognize that according to Jesus, traditional religion is one of the most dangerous forces that keeps people from God. You heard me rightly. Religion keeps people from God. You can go to church. You can feel religious. You can dress up and listen to the Bible. You can recite words that are sanctimonious. You can sing a song. You can eat a cracker. You can do that week after week after week and go to hell. It can actually be the religion that masks you in realizing that my heart needs changed. It's formalities and traditions that we go through. And my one example that I shared earlier in the service of Memorial Church in Cambridge, it was just one example of the the formal, the polished religion that will keep you from Jesus. And it will keep you from the heart cleansing that he can provide. We must beware of using religion to ignore what matters to God. What matters to God is the condition of our hearts, the filth of our hearts. The second facet of this first half of Mark 7 is we must face what matters most to God, the cleansing of our hearts. We must face what matters most to God, the cleansing of our hearts. We must beware of religion that can mask the, the deepest need we have. And we must instead face our deepest need and what matters most to God, and that is that our hearts be cleansed. So you say, why did God make all those rules about clean and unclean foods in the Old Testament? That's what Jesus explains in verses 14 to 23. He basically says the Old Testament laws of cleanness and uncleanness were object lessons designed to teach people that they themselves needed to be cleansed by Jesus. They were wrapped up with what it meant to worship at the temple. So they were object lessons just like the whole temple itself. The whole temple itself was a massive, repeated object lesson with the priests and the sacrifices. They were object lessons to say, you need Jesus. You need Jesus' sacrifice. You need Jesus as your mediator. You need Jesus to make you clean. All of these object lessons were driving at that lesson. That's the major clarification that Mark makes in verse 19 when he says, Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus fulfilled the cleansing, the cleansing of people that all of those regulations were object lessons to teach, to lead toward. He fulfilled them all. Let me just state it bluntly. Ritual cleanness, being able to enter the temple, 
was an object lesson that was designed by God to teach people about the uncleanness that everyone should care about, that is, the uncleanness within. And Jesus then says it bluntly, he teaches it bluntly, what comes out of your heart reveals where true cleansing must take place. Jesus gives one general term there. He says, your evil thoughts. And then he follows it with a list of 12 sins. You see that in verse 21? For from within, out of the out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. And then even though your translation doesn't reflect it, it's interesting. The first six terms after that are plural, and the last six terms are singular. Immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, covetings, so forth. The first six terms are plural. The last six are singular. This is a structured list. I think you should use it for self-evaluation. Use it systematically. Do you think that this list generally characterizes your heart in an accurate way? In other words, do you honestly think that generally from your childhood you've tended toward self-centeredness? Desiring things that God doesn't allow? You think you've generally tended toward discontentment? Deception? Demeaning talk? We've got to admit that here in this first section, Jesus speaks as uncomfortably to us as he does to the Syrophoenician woman, right? He bluntly says, you're dirty on the inside. And what Jesus says here is horribly proud and horribly deceptive if he's not right. Now, I just want to say, you're going to have to honestly and humbly evaluate your life according to this description. You can brush it off and say, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. He's arrogant himself. The fact that he's speaking to me like this means he's demeaning and he's slanderous. He doesn't know me. You can brush it off. I just want to urge you as a friend, as a brother, as a pastor, honestly and humbly look at this list and evaluate yourself. You want to go a step deeper? Ask someone else who's closest to you and who you trust to evaluate you. Your spouse, your parent, your brother, your sister. Now I've come to realize, I'm just telling you for me, I've come to realize that Jesus' analysis of the human heart does accurately describe my heart. This is my heart. It has led me to confess my need for cleansing, to run to Jesus, to wash me of my guilt, to change my heart thousands of times. And I'm thankful that Jesus has cleansed me and he has changed me. According to his promises, he has forgiven me. He has changed me. I can genuinely say right now, I am not what I should be. I am not standing up here saying that I've got a pure heart. 
but I can tell you I am not what I used to be. God continues to grow me. I'm not what I should be, but I'm not what I was, as John Newton famously said it. I encourage you to evaluate your life according to Jesus' description of the human heart here in Mark 7, and I pray that you will come to a point where you acknowledge it's accurate. And I think Jesus said it because he loves me. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He's exposing my heart because he wants to wash it and change it. What a friend. I pray you'll come to that realization. The second major point, we really wrap up with this, is Jesus can cleanse the filth in anyone's heart, whether religious or irreligious. In the last half of Mark 7, the focus shifts from what needs to be cleansed to who can be cleansed. The focus shifts from the religious Jews who misunderstood cleanliness to the non-Jews around them who needed the gospel, who needed the forgiveness of Jesus. Now these Gentiles, the Syrophoenician woman, the people living in Decapolis, they were considered by Jews to be wild dogs, to be scavengers, worthless. And the next three events that Mark records, actually going into chapter 8, focus on outsiders, outsiders. And Mark is deliberately contrasting the responses that the religious people were self-righteous and they rejected Jesus for how he didn't care about the rules. And the despised Gentiles were coming to him and experiencing his saving power. Mark is contrasting them. Now, I'm only going to focus here in conclusion a few comments on this Syrophoenician woman, the exchange between Jesus and this Syrophoenician woman. It's in verses 24 to 30. It is really easy to read this exchange and immediately jump to the conclusion, like the example I shared earlier, that Jesus was insulting her by calling her a dog, and he himself was racist and sexist. If you want to come to that conclusion, you can. However, there are strong reasons, strong reasons to question that knee-jerk interpretation. Let me give you just four. The first is this. Jesus has already displayed repeatedly throughout Mark how countercultural he is in how he values women and loves the Gentiles. In other words, this is not a turning point in Jesus' ministry. This is characteristic of his ministry from the very beginning. He values women and he loves the Gentiles in a way that was countercultural. Secondly, it's critical to note that the term dog that Jesus uses is a term for a household pet rather than a mangy scavenger out in the wilderness. In other words, he's actually, by using this term, he's confronting the Jewish viewpoint of his day that non Jews were wild and worthless. And he's actually suggesting with the term that in a sense she could be a part of God's household. Even the term he's using is pushing against his culture. Third, going deeper, it is much better to read Jesus' question of this woman as a test of her humility. And it's a test of your humility as well. He's checking to see if this woman would acknowledge Jesus, who's a Jew, as God's Savior. 
Jesus did the exact same thing with the Samaritan woman when he told her bluntly, salvation comes from the Jews, not your people, the Samaritans. Salvation comes from the Jews. This woman, just like every other man and woman, whether Jew or Gentile, needed to come to realize that she didn't deserve the food. She didn't deserve God's salvation that Jesus was offering. Jesus was testing her humility. Would she acknowledge, in terms of whether I deserve this or not, am I willing to say, yeah, I don't deserve this? And finally, I think it's critical to observe that Jesus declares this woman a hero. Mark records this because she's a hero. He tested her humility, and she passed the test with flying colors. This woman represents exemplary humility, and she and her daughter were cleansed. It's the kind of humility that every one of us needs to manifest. God, I am like the household pet. I don't even deserve food that comes from the table, but the crumbs do fall. You can, you can save someone like me, Jesus. I look to you, you alone. Now, this week, my family and I have been enjoying the song, Hymn of Heaven. It comes to the climactic point. And on that day, we join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith With one voice, a thousand generations sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain, forever he shall reign. And on that day, we join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith. I can't wait to stand next to this woman. She's a hero. There is no place for racism or sexism in following Jesus. All of us who follow him must submit to God's plan of salvation, which came through the Jews. And all of us must acknowledge that Jesus can save anyone, man or woman, Jew or Gentile, single or married, rich or poor, children who grow up in homes that memorize the Bible, or children who have demons. Jesus can save and cleanse all. That's the message of the scripture. That's the message of Mark 7. Every follower of Jesus has been saved out of racism and sexism. And we must continue to wage the inner war against prejudice. Prejudice is a human problem. And this is a war that our culture on both sides of the aisle for centuries has been fueling. We must, as Christians, refuse to be racist and sexist. We must refuse it. You say, how? You go back to square one. You go back to square one, which is identifying yourself with the Syrophoenician and saying, I don't deserve to sit at God's dinner table. But even the pets get some of the kids' crumbs. That's where we war against it. Humility. Humility that this Syrophoenician modeled. My last comments this morning. I just want to bring us back to where I started, back to the dinner table. 
when you wash your hands, remind yourself, the cleansing of my heart is more important than the cleansing of my hands, and only Jesus can cleanse my heart. And when you sweep up the crumbs off of the dining room floor at the end of the day, remind yourself, when you see those filthy crumbs, I'm thankful that God's grace fell to an undeserving creature like me. I advise you to turn these daily activities at the dinner table into reminders of Jesus' grace.